All right, let's do this. We today are going to land the airplane. We have been in this series for several weeks, um, and we're going to finish this out today. And it's always hard to kind of come and land these things because I want to make sure that we recap, but I also want to make sure that we understand what the point of all of this was. These series, as I begin preparing them and things like that, is they tend to take on a life of their own. I kind of draw out a roadmap on them. I write down some of the topics I feel like the Lord's put in my heart. And then as I get into those topics, then we end up drilling down and drilling down and drilling down. But this one here is so crucial to understanding going forward, because this new man concept, honestly, is not taught very much. It's not taught in a lot of churches, because the idea of a new man is somewhat foreign, because how does one become the new man, right? What do they have to do? They have to be born again. That term there, or saved, or whatever you want to call it, unfortunately, is just not taught. And a lot, of, a lot of churches today, they talk about, you know, oh, you know, you can go to heaven. How, how do you get there? Well, you should be baptized. Or you need to go and do this or go and do that. And those are all good things, but those are not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. It's as if you bring something to the table. It's like you're saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and rising again and stuff. And that was almost enough to make me right. Thank you. That was almost good enough. Now, they would never say it that way, but that is what it implies. I had a friend of mine that grew up in a mainline denomination church his entire life, went every single Sunday, was, uh, grew up, moved away, was up in Omaha, went to a church, and they taught about being born again for the first time. Never heard it in his entire life. Every Sunday he was in that church. Never heard of it. Gets up there, so he gives his life to Christ. He goes back to his pastor, and he said, why did you never tell me about this? His response was, I just assumed everybody knew. Why would we ever make that assumption? You see, that is why we started this. Is that so we can get on the same page of what this means? Because it's not what we think it means when we talk about being a new man. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ. We cannot get more righteous. We can't. It's beautiful. You're holy now because God made you that way. You can't do anything to do to fix that. Right? You can't become more holy and guess what? You can't become less. Because it did had nothing to do with you. You brought nothing to the table. Jesus came and made the sacrifice. So, let's go back to one of the, the verses we read every week for several weeks. Let's start with Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, if then you were raised with Christ. Now, what does that imply? We died with Christ, right? Can't be raised if you weren't dead. Here we go. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. For you died. Is this talking physically? No. Spiritually. We died spiritually and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So spiritually, we died with Him. But... We raised with Him. Spiritually. Who did the work? He did. Why do we try so hard to earn this? We try every day. We try to please God with our actions. Right? The things we do are a result of the change that are in us. But the change that is in us is not a result of the things that we do. We cannot mix those up. So number, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, 
Think about Ephesians 2. Where are we in Ephesians 2? We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. He is the head, seated at the right hand of God. We are His body. Dude, was Jesus decapitated? No. Spiritually speaking, we are at the right hand of God. We're seated there with Him, where all authority has been given to Him. Thus, it's been given to us. We are there with Him. So if we are there, we put off the things of the earth. We put to death the members which are on the earth. What members are on the earth? You're looking at it in all its glory, right? Soak it in, people. This is it. We put this to death, not literally going out and killing yourself, okay? But what it wants there's this battle that we've, we've talked about between the flesh and the spirit. Romans 7, you think Paul's like having a stroke or something. He's like, the things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do do. And he goes on and on and on. We put to death this member. That doesn't mean we like, well, you shouldn't do that. No, we put to death because the spiritual life is more. We put to death the members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. This is not an all-exhaustive list, but these are the things of the world, the things of the flesh. We put to death these things. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on whom? The sons of disobedience. Those who are not with Christ. Those who have not died spiritually and become born again. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. What image? What was created? The new man. We always talk about we're created in the image of God. Guys, think about that. That is not just talking physically. Adam was created as this perfect, sinless being, just like God. We are now recreated by God as this new man. The old man died. This new man is now created in the image of God. Who did it? He did. It is perfect and without sin. This one we have to deal with. Verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbian, scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. He is everything. He encompasses all things. You guys see this. This is the new man. But who did it? He did it. Then we jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but to give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Here we go. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and arose again. Who should we live for? For him. Why? Because he died and rose again on our behalf. He died for all. And why is Paul saying this? He says the love of Christ compels us. That I have to tell you. This is the love of Christ. I have to tell you that you are lost in your sin. I have to tell you that the end for you is not good. I have to. Because the love of Christ compels me to do so. But there is hope. You see, that is love. Love is bringing correction. Love is telling somebody standing in a burning building that the building is on fire. The way our culture today wants us to equate this is that if we were standing in a skyscraper and there's one way out and that building is on fire, that it is unloving to say, you need to go this way. 
Maybe they want to go through a window. Maybe they want to try the stairs. But there's one exit, and if we tell them that, we're judging them. And we don't love them because we're not accepting the choices that they have made. That is not loving. The love of Christ compels me to say, there is one way out of here, and you need to go through it. But the choice is yours. That is the love of Christ. We have lost that. We have succumbed to the pressure of culture because we don't want to offend somebody. We don't want to make somebody unhappy. We just need to love them where they are. Yes, we love them where they are, pointing to the exit. We don't embrace what they're doing. The things that bring destruction. It is so hard, yes, standing there. But I would rather offend somebody with the gospel and watch them spend eternity with Christ than offend them and think, okay, well, I just don't want to bother them. What happened to the passion? What happened to the pressure on, on the believer to go out there and share the, share the gospel to the lost? We don't do that anymore. We don't talk to our neighbors. We don't go to all the world. We step back. We've forgotten what God has done for us. We forgot that we too were once sinners, lost, and on our way to hell, but because of Christ's work, and probably somebody telling us that we are now on the way to heaven because of Him. Why would we not do the same thing? The church has become the thermometer in culture instead of the thermostat. We need to be the ones that are changing things. And we can only do that by getting filled with the Holy Spirit and being compelled by the love of Christ to share that. That's my last rabbit trail. Let's move on. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know Him thus no longer. What they're saying there is that Jesus is no longer on the earth physically. Therefore, here we go. If anyone is in Christ. What does that if means? There are some that aren't, right? If anyone is in Christ, if a person is Christ, okay, what are the results of that? He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become, become new. This is that term, guys, we talked about that metamorphosis. You see, God doesn't take that old thing and clean it up and make it better. It dies and new birth. It's like a, the, the, the same term used for a, 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 a cocoon where a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. If you've never looked at this, that caterpillar goes in there and everything about him turns into goo. It's nothing and recreates as this butterfly. Have you ever noticed that they don't look alike? I mean, did that strike anybody else as weird? Because it did me. I'm like, here's you got this big slimy thing with too many legs and he comes down, he's got wings. All right, explain that one. But that is the term, that it is completely gone and something new is created in its place. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Okay, who reconciled us? God did. How did he do it? Through Jesus. Again, what part did you play in that? Nothing. So knock it off. We bring nothing to the table. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I skipped a part, the ministry of reconciliation there. What is that? That is that God was in Christ, the Father in the Son, bringing the world back to himself, not imputing their sins and their trespasses on them because they put them on Christ. And now because of that, we have this word of reconciliation to go out there and tell them. We then are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on whose behalf? Christ. I mean, He died for all, right? He wants them all. It's on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. 
For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I mean, guys, this is like growing up. And mom says you can't have any cookies. And you go and you take the cookies. And your brother comes along because you're about to get whipped. At least you did in my house. You're about to get whipped. And your brother comes along and says, don't whip him. I'll take it. I know that's never happened ever, right? Yeah, exactly. You're like, uh, this not computing. Yeah. I mean, it's like God put our sin on Christ because He loved us. All we do is receive it. It was His choice. He chose to do it. So because of that, He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to do what? Be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, Christ took all the beating, we get all the glory. We get the the benefits of this. But what is the key? It's in Him. It's in Him. That's it. It's not in church. It's not in good deeds. It's not in reaching the poor and feeding the the, the starving and, and all this other stuff. It's not going to Africa. That's a good thing. Okay? It's not even, and I know this is going to be shocking to you all, okay? And I know many of you will equate righteousness in this, but cheering for Nebraska. It's not in that either. Right? (laughs) <laughs> I said it's not in that. It's this Saturday, guys. Game week. Work with me. It's in Him. In what He has done. You see, this is the thing. It's all about Him. We are the new man because of Him. I mean, imagine. I mean, you hear about these, these trust fund babies and all of that that come out of the womb squillionaires, Right? What did they do to earn that? Nothing. Right? All the work was done. All they did was have a pulse. That's it. I mean, believe me, I'd be down with it. I'm I'm not, you know, saying it's a bad thing. But it was just handed to them. Here you go. Literally, Jesus said, here you go. You can't do anything for it. You see, we spend so much time trying to find a way to make God work. Okay, God, what, what can I do for you? Well, he's done everything. Look at what John said. This is Jesus dealing with, with the, the Pharisees as usual. John 5, verse 39. You search the Scriptures. What are we talking about? It would be the Old Testament, our Bible. For in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. What? The Old Testament. These Scriptures. They testify of him. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. See, they're searching in there. Okay, God. What? Do we do to be made right with you? And God sends His Son to the world and says, Hey, I'm right here. Well, that's not good enough. No, what do we do, God? It's right here. Jesus says, They talk about me. They testify of me. But you are not willing to come. This is the world we live in. The church world that we live in. That these people are like, Okay, I'm going to go and do these different things hoping that I find God. If we truly were searching the Scriptures, we'd realize the work's been done. All we do is receive. But we're not willing. So we've talked about that. We've talked about this new man and what it is and how we get there, right? This is where we're at. Now, from there we talked about faith. What is faith? 
How do we get faith? What do we do with faith? We know in Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God but, and must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Let's break that down. That means, if you don't have faith, can you please God? What is faith? It's belief in Him. Belief that God is who He says He is, and I will do what He says He will do. My belief is in Him. So if I don't have that, what can I do to please God? Nothing. So all these works and all these other things, are we pleasing God with them? No. Not at all. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Because he who comes to God must believe. Guess what that word is? Have faith. Must have faith that He is. He is what? That He exists. I am that I am. That He is. He exists. That He is the Creator of all things. And that His Son died and arose on our behalf. That's who God is. And He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. There's another thing. We don't diligently seek Him anymore. We passively seek Him. We get a little bit here and a little bit there. But we do not diligently seek after Him. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're just going up the, the, the passage a little bit. And then you get past all of this and you get the hall of faith. It was by faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Noah. By what? Why is it always by faith? Is because they couldn't see it. But they knew the promise was coming. The substance is the realization. The evidence is the confidence. This is so important. This is that we put our faith and our hope in God. How can we do that? Because of a physical act that happened in history. Peter tells us that our faith and hope is in God because Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, you don't believe me? 500 people saw it. I mean, this is a physical thing that took place on this earth. So we always talk about like, oh, God in the spiritual sense. He did things on this earth to make it known to us that we could put our faith and hope in Him. Listen, if you make a claim, whatever that claim may be, and it might seem a little weird and a little loopy, and if at the end of that whole statement you say, listen, I'm going to die, and a few days later I'm going to get out of the casket, and you do it, you have my attention. You have my attention. See, we put our faith in Him. We're born again. That's step number one. Our faith must be in Him to do that. But then we talked about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is what we saw in Acts chapter 2, where Jesus told the apostles, said, listen, here's what I need you to do. I'm getting ready to go back to heaven, but I need you to take the next 10 days. I want you to hang out in Jerusalem. The Feast of Pentecost is coming. I need you to hang out there because this is so crucial. I need you to go in all the world and preach the gospel. But before you can do that, I need you empowered. I need the Holy Spirit to be upon you, that you can perform the acts of healing and the miracles and all of these other things. You need the Holy Spirit upon you. And so we talked about the dynamics of that. And in John chapter 1, verse 19, it says, now this is the testimony of John. John the baptizer, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, the anointed one. I am not the Messiah. And they said, well, then what then are you? Are you Elijah? Remember, they're waiting on Elijah to come back. They still are. He said, nope. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not that either. Well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. See, he knew his role. He was the precursor to the Messiah coming. He was laying the groundwork. Now, those who, were, uh, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. Shocker there, right? 
And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, uh, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus, the immediate day following, coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who took the sin of the world away? The Lamb. The Passover Lamb. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man preferred before me, for, uh, who was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He remained upon Him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. That was John's testimony. This is the Son of God. I watched the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and stay. John was a prophet. He spoke things. He knew things. God had revealed things to him. We know that because Jesus called him such. But the key there is he makes a statement. The one whom the Holy Spirit descends on, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So when one is baptized in the Holy Spirit, who does it? Jesus does it. You see, we have the baptism into Christ done by the Holy Spirit where we're born again, made that new man. You have the baptism by the disciples, anybody, where we do it in water as a sign of that new covenant of, of the decision you've made that you have given your heart to the Lord. It's just an outward sign. But then we have the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which we watch happen in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit comes upon them and 120 speaking in tongues and great signs and wonders come out of that moment. It was so crucial that Jesus said, listen, I got work for you to do, but I need you to take 10 days and I need you to wait. Trust me, it'll be worth it. Immediately after that, we see Peter heal a man who couldn't walk. We see blind eyes open. We see dead raised. And this is happening upon everybody who uh, was baptized in the Holy Spirit. We see the deacons and Philip later doing all of these works. It is Him that did it. Now, many confuse this. They say, well, no, once you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you're born again, that is it. It can't be. Because we're dealing with two different subjects. Because we see that we're baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. We see that in multiple places throughout the Scripture. But here, we see who's going to do it. It's Jesus. He didn't do it on this earth. So it's a spiritual thing. But watch what happens in Acts chapter 11. This is the story where Peter was praying. They come from Joppa. They come and get him to go see Cornelius. And so he doesn't want to go because they're Gentiles. And, and he had that vision where the sheep comes down and, and he, says, he says, rise, kill and eat all these unclean animals. He said, no, 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 no. I've never eaten anything unclean. And so he goes with them as the Holy Spirit tells him to. He gets there and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And how did he know that? They were praying in tongues. That's how he knew. Now watch him describe this story. That's Acts chapter 10. Now we're in Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him of the circumcision. He's talking about the Jews. Saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Remember, that's not just a no-no. That is against the law and it is punishable. They couldn't believe he did it. 
But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and as in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me, and when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing uncommon or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was having, where I was, having been sent from, to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his, uh, in his house, and who said to him, send, me to, send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you, you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning, just like in Acts chapter 2, right? Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized you with water, but you shall baptize with the Holy Spirit. Who made this statement? Jesus did. We have no record of this statement being made by Jesus. John makes it. All four Gospels, it's there. John makes a statement. There was a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples that's not recorded in Scripture. And he said, listen, John baptized you guys with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we know because of John who does that. It's Jesus. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? You see, it's not the same thing. The infilling and the, the power of the Holy Spirit come upon is not the same thing. Why is this so important? Guys, if the love of Christ compels you to go into all the world, then we should follow the same example that he gave for his disciples, whom he told to go into all the world, and to walk in the fullness and power of what God has. Why would you want to go out there with uh, half a gun if you were going to battle? Why would you take half a suit of armor? You never would. We should go out there with everything that God has for us to do the work of the ministry. This is so important. You see, we've talked about that. We've talked about the new man. We've talked about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the anointing, what it is, how people are anointed. Yes, absolutely. 2 Corinthians verse 1 says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So are we anointed? Yes, we are. Who did it? God did it. Ephesians 3, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, that is, with the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, this anointing is given to us by God. For work. We act like the anointing falls. Somebody's more anointed, less anointed. Anointing means you are set apart. You see, in the temple, they would anoint the instruments that were used in there, thus making them for one purpose. They were set apart for that use and no other purpose. 
When a person would be anointed, kings and prophets and things like that, they would come and they would pour that oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, on their head, and thus it was setting them apart for the service of God. We've been anointed by God for what purpose? For His service. But we don't do it. We talk about anointed musicians, how, boy, they're anointed. Yeah, they are. So are you. Maybe they're just more talented than you are. I mean, God can give us gifts, but the anointing is different. The anointing sets us apart, and then He seals us with the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are the instruments that God uses on this earth. We have been set apart for one purpose, for His glory. Whose glory do we seek? Our own. We shouldn't, but we do. If we've been anointed, set apart by God, God's done all of this stuff for us. Do you think maybe we could carve out a little time to serve Him each and every week? I would hope so. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about serving God. You realize you're not serving God by going to church? That's a good thing to do, but that's not serving God. Serving Him is doing what He's told us to do. You see, we see all of these things coming together. We see the power of the Holy Spirit happening. And it all stems off this idea that we are this new man. Now look at Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others, Jesus on the earth also, sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. What's he doing? He's sending people out, right? Then he said to them, the harvest is truly great. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way before I, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves, going into bad places. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, sandals. Greet no one along the road. In other words, keep your head down and get to where you're supposed to be. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive, eat such things as they set before you. And heal the sick there. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Notice how there's two things here. You heal the sick and let them know that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is here. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out on the streets and say, the very dust of the city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. So in other words, if they won't receive the message, move along. Don't waste your time. Woe to you, Teresa. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which had been done in, in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. What mighty works? They fed the 5,000 in Bethsaida. And they did not repent. I'm sorry. You show up with, what was it, five loaves and two fishes? And you feed 5,000 people? You got my attention. Didn't do nothing for them. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects me, and uh, he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. In other words, with the ministry of reconciliation, and we go forth and we give them the word of the Lord. We heal the sick. We do the things that God told us to do. When they reject us, who are they rejecting? So why do we take it personally? He literally just told them, guys, this is what's going to happen. And yet, we take it personally, and it makes us scared to go out and do it, and so we don't. But that ministry of reconciliation belongs to us. You see, we have authority 
on this earth. And we spent a long time talking about that. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, it said, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What's another way we could say that? In him. Right? Because they had authority from him. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, I explained this way back when, but I'll explain it again. When it talks about trample, the, we have the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, it's not talking about that God's okay with you killing your garden snakes and stomping on bugs. He doesn't care. Go ahead. Kill them all. Right? We found a little snake out back yesterday. I've never seen my wife move that quickly. She hid. Stomp on them. She won't kill a cricket. You know why? They crunch. She doesn't like the crunch. So my job, I'm the cricket killer. Right? This is not what that's talking about. Isaac helps me. This is not what he's talking about because he says, he's not talking about stepping on snakes and bugs. He says, and over all the power of the enemy. What is he talking about? He is talking about the power of the devil. Look at the next chapter. He explains this a little bit more. In verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? So we see serpent and scorpion again. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? him you see when you ask for to receive the holy spirit the baptism of the holy spirit you don't have to worry about getting any of this other stuff you get the things that god has given us you see the word authority here is ex exosia is how you say that and the word power is this dunamis this dynamite is where we get this from this authority we have delegate power we are his ambassadors his representatives on the earth it's time we start acting like it it's time that we walk around with some confidence in whom the authority comes from you see, when they reject us, who are they really rejecting? Him. And the one who sent Him. They're not rejecting you. If they don't like your message, they're rejecting God. I mean, you know how many times I've been on a college campus and, and getting in a discussion with somebody who's like, well, only God can judge me. Yeah. And He's gonna. That's why I'm telling you about this. Like, you can avoid that. I would highly suggest you avoid that. It's so dumb. Like, I'm not judging you in the sense that I'm condemning you. I'm trying to show you there's another way. Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. You see, we have to be that. Or strong in the Lord and in His power and in His might. It's not on ourselves. You guys see what little we bring to the table. I mean, I hope you're picking up on that. What is our sole responsibility in this earth that has anything to do with what our works are and all of that? It's one thing. It's broken down to one word. Obedience. That's it. You see, when God says, go into all the world to preach the gospel, that's my job. It didn't say convince them of it. It says if people are dying and go to hell, we go and tell them about that. But we don't have to convince them. When we lay hands on the sick... Whose responsibility is to make sure they recover? It's not ours. It's His. You see, we have authority on this earth as His ambassadors, His representative, but we have to be strong in the Lord, not in ourselves. When we are weak, He is made strong. We're strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. 
You see, we've talked about this and we've turned this into the spiritual warfare thing of how we have authority over the enemy because the power has been stripped and Jesus made a show of them openly. The authority rests with him, thus it rests with us. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, who's your adversary? Yep, not your neighbor, not your political foes, not even the opposing football team. There are some of them that are teetering, though, but I'm not going there. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Guys, we don't have any sufferings here in this country. We're doing pretty all right. Just because somebody unfriends you on Facebook, that does not mean that they are just hating you and now you are being, for the sake of the gospel, that their people are coming against you right? You will survive. There are people that die every day for their faith. Please don't equate those two things together. He comes like a roaring lion. That means he's making a bunch of noise and he's trying to get your attention and get you to focus somewhere else, but there is nothing that he can do because he has to seek whom he may devour. The only way he devours a person is with their blessing. That'd be like someone punching you in the face and say, go ahead and hit me again. Put some stank on it this time. Right? We'd never do that. I mean, we're standing there. We know all the things. We have all the ability. All authority has been given us over heaven and earth and all of this stuff. And yet we stand there as these weak you know, little things. Well, that's too bad. And I wish there was something I could do for you. We resist him. And we stay steadfast in the faith. You see, in Ephesians 3, we read this before. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through belief, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, what love? The love of Christ. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To Him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Y'all, that should be our prayer. You see, this is all, our part is belief in Him. His part is everything else. We're rooted, we're grounded in, the, in love, we're grounded in the faith, and we believe that He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Whatever it is your limitation is on God, just think bigger. Because no matter what it is, He is bigger than that. You see, this is the authority. This is what it is, and it all stems from what? How do we come to any of this information? How do we break down this knowledge and get an understanding of who God is and what He's done and what He's going to do for us? It's all come from the Word. You see, it's the Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's able to divide soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the intents of the heart. It all comes back to the Word. You see, the reason that we know and the reason that we have confidence is because of the Word. The reason that we know that Jesus rose from the dead and that there were 500 people that saw him is because of the word. The reason that we know that when we were born again, it was based off of what he did and not what we do is because of the word. This is why it's so crucial to be so grounded in scripture that it is your foundation, that it is not church practice, that it is not maybe even your theology. If it is not grounded in scripture, then it needs to be thrown out. 
There are things that we do that are okay. But if it's not founded in something that has authority, then it's all for naught. When Jesus in Matthew 7 was talking about the two houses built, one on the rock, one on the sand. The rock being the word. He said the winds came and the floods rose and the, and the rains beat against the house. But because its foundation was solid, it didn't go down. But the one on the sand, when the floods rose and the wind came and the rain beat down on it, it fell. And great was its fall because its foundation was on the sand. All of the elements were the same. One stood, one fell. We're the same way. 2 Timothy 2 tells us that remind them of these, say, these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, it all comes back to the word. This is what the new man is, is we are created in the image of God. and We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus said, when we, when we choose to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this is the confidence that we have, that we know that all of these things are true and that we're going to spend eternity with God when we're born again because Jesus said that we would be. And he rose and he died. He died and he rose. I mean, again, it all comes back to these things. This isn't just because the Bible says so. It's because the Bible records what actually happened on the earth. It's, not a, it's just a book. It's a series of 66 books with over 40 authors written over a 2,500-year span. And yet it's so consistent and so precise and that every letter was put there by God with a purpose that maybe we should spend time in it and learn it and grow in it and understand it and build our foundation on something that has gone beyond the test of time. That cultures around the world have tried to eradicate the Bible in everything. They burned them. They made it illegal. I mean, anything they could do, they've done. And yet, here it is today. You see, we have to build our foundation on something greater than ourselves. All truth comes from God. All morality comes from God. That is the standard. We are image bearers. And we point to what that standard is. Guys, it's time for us as the church, the body of Christ. I don't mean Grace Church, as the church to rise up and recognize what the new man is. If you can be no more righteous, then we should be walking around so bold and so confident that we should be scaring the enemy of the things that we can do and the things that we can bring to the table here because God has empowered us. You guys with me? You see, it's time for the church to wake up. We have got work to do. We all talk about how we just want to see the lost. We want revival. We want all these things. You realize that revival are people weeping and coming to God, repenting of their sins. We want to see that, but we're not willing to do the work that was necessary to get there. It's time for the church to wake up and rise to the place that God has put us, that we are seated at the right hand of Him, that we have the ministry of reconciliation, and all authority has been given to us by Him for His purpose.